Welcome to Utah Talks Climate Podcast, brought to you by Utah Clean Energy. Each episode brings together Utah leaders to get their unique perspective on the impacts and solutions to our climate challenge. Hello, and welcome to the Utah Talks Climate Podcast. My name is Logan Mitchell, and I'm a climate scientist and energy analyst at Utah Clean Energy. In this podcast, Utah Clean Energy brings together Utah leaders from all political stripes, backgrounds, and beliefs to get their unique perspective on the impacts and solutions to the climate crisis. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Brian McInerney, who's a senior hydrologist and climate scientist retired from the National Weather Service. I can't think of a better time to have a conversation with you than mid-August when in Utah when uh, living in a desert in the face of climate change, water crisis, the water situation is certainly at the top of our minds. So, Brian, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. First, could you tell us a little bit about your background? What exactly is a hydrologist and how did you get into this work? Yeah, so I, I went to college in Minnesota, um, got an undergrad degree, and then I got a master's degree in forest hydrology. And then I got hired by the Weather Service at the Salt Lake City Weather Forecast Office uh, and started as the intern. And 30 years later, I retired as the senior hydrologist. And I was also the climate change scientist. And I liked water. I was a canoe guide in northern Minnesota and Canada uh, for many years when I was in college and a little bit after that. And so I like being around water. And I thought if I have to go to work at a real job, I might as well do something I like and, and got into hydrology. And, and it worked out quite well. It was a really nice job to have. You really like water, and then you end up coming to, to one of the driest <laughs> states in the country. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think that was a the big part of that was in addition to the uh, being a guide, a canoe guide, I was also a ski patroller in Colorado for a while. And, you know, with Utah's incredible powder skiing, that's where we hope to end up. And I was fortunate enough to get the Salt Lake job. So it was more about skiing than actual big rivers and big lakes and such. Yeah, frozen water. We all like frozen water here for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious, when did climate change come into play in your work? When did you, you know, start thinking about it as a big part of your work? And, and when did it become a dialogue, you know, at the, at the weather service? Right. So I would uh, give water supply briefings to the municipalities uh, the water districts, uh, engineers, anybody who is involved with water, I would provide the, the forecast for what's coming up for the spring, the spring runoff for the volume of water that's going to come out of the mountains and the peak flow. And people would say when we'd have a dry year, this was in the early 90s, uh, is this due to something we heard about climate change? And I really wasn't sure because I was educated as a hydrologist and not a climate scientist. So um, I would talk to the people who did the research back at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, a NOAA lab in Boulder, Colorado, and ask them just these questions that I received. And then I went to the actual place where they do the research for two weeks and, and met with all of the scientists. So I understood how climate science works, how the warming is occurring and how they did the research and what statistical methods they used and came back. And then I could answer these questions. And it was a, a really time well spent period of my life that 
as time went on, it was 90% hydrology to 10% climate science to when I retired, it was probably 80% climate change and climate science to 20% hydrology because it was impacting everything I did. And so I would just weave it into what we're looking at and why we're seeing what we are. Fascinating. You know, you're, you're talking about um, the, the importance of uh, climate in, in this discussion in that space. You know, right now, the entire Southwest is, has been in a drought for, you know, really the last 20 years. And, and we're seeing the impacts, you know, across the state. Um, what, do, what does it mean when we talk about the, the, the term mega drought? What does that mean? And, you know, do you, do you have some context, some historical context for the current drought that we're experiencing? Yeah. Um, when you talk about a mega drought, that's usually dry periods. And you can even have big years interspersed between that, but it's an overall dry period for 20 to 30 years. Um, we're in one right now and it's going to continue. And when you look back, uh, what about the Dust Bowl? Well, this is worse than the Dust Bowl. You have to go back to about 1500 to see a drought comparable to where we are right now. And the unfortunate part of this is that it's not going to get any better soon. It's the warming that we've had has changed the weather patterns to one of big high pressures that are the dominant weather feature over the Western US. And this pattern is only exacerbated more and more as we warm. So we can anticipate this mega drought is going to extend for, for many, many years, multiple mega droughts put together you know, through the 21st, 2100 and beyond. So it's, it's not something that's temporary or it just kind of comes and goes. This is our weather pattern and it's going to get much worse. That's, and it's, and it's really important to make that connection between the drought and the, the changed climate that we're in and which is still changing. Um, that's one of the things I, I really am not hearing as much of in the, the political discourse is, you know, making that connection. Yeah. What, are, what are some of the impacts of the drought? You know, farming is an obvious example, but, you know, it goes, it goes much further, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. When you look at these mega droughts we're in, all you have to do is look at the reservoirs, really, especially Lake Powell, Lake Mead. Uh, reservoir depletion, you have groundwater depletion, uh, wildlife and vegetative areas are stressed, uh, wildfires are increasing uh, a great amount, soil erosion is also a problem, and when you look at our winter time periods, with high pressure being the dominant weather feature, and we're starting winter later and ending it earlier, our snowpack is much diminished. And it's uh, when you see spring snowmelt runoff, peak flows are much lower and the volume of runoff is, is uh, diminished significantly over the years. And that's only going to continue until we hit, you know, depending what studies you've looked at between 2035 and 2065, that 30 year period and beyond, Areas that are typically 100% snow covered in the mountains are going to be 50% or less snow cover until roughly about 2080, 
um, you know, 2090 will be in uh, a rain-driven hydrology and we won't see snow melt uh, anymore, except for the, the highest elevations. We might see some from the Uintas in Utah or, you know, the Rocky Mountains at the highest peaks or the farther north you go, it will get better. But really, uh, we are headed to a rain-driven hydrology in our, in our near future. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So thinking about, you know, where we're headed next, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between mitigation and adaptation. Um, what is the difference between, you know, adapting to a drier climate versus mitigating the root cause that's, that's actually driving this change? When you, when you talk about climate change and you look at what's driving our warming climate, it's because we're taking carbon out of the ground and burning it, put it in the atmosphere. Well, to mitigate this, we need to sequester that carbon and put it back in the ground, back to levels that were pre-industrial levels. Uh, and we're not doing that anytime soon. There's a lot of the science is there. There is a lot of work being done uh, to diminish our, our amount of coal and natural gas and uh, oil, those types of things into the atmosphere. But the political will is what's stopping this. Um, I was on a panel from the Ken Gardner Policy Institute at the University of Utah, where we put together a plan to have Utah as, uh, as part of a solution to reduce the amount of carbon we put the atmosphere and it was it was a team of 30 uh, scientists from physicians to engineers to um, all sorts of, of high level people it was really well done and yet when we presented our results and part of this was how to clean up the air in the Salt Lake Valley and the Provo area uh, it was kind of watered down a great deal and I found that very disturbing that all this really good work was done and it really wasn't taken seriously when it got to the legislature. And I've, I've, uh, I, I found that that's what's going on where we could change this around pretty quick and it would take pain. It would take money and it would take time, not as much as we think, but the end result is we'll be handing off an environment to our children and our grandchildren that is much better than what we are, are seeing right now with business as usual. The problem is when it gets to the political realm, uh, all the inertia in this uh, effort stops or is slowed down dramatically. And you have to understand, we are on a time clock where if we hit tipping points and most of the scientists feel we've already hit these tipping points. It's runaway climate change. And you can hand wave all you want on this and just say, oh, it's not happening. But if you look at the science, it's quite disturbing on where we're headed. Yeah, I agree with you there. And, you know, I guess I was encouraged that the, the legislature um, seemed to be taking the issue with the Great Salt Lake, the, the falling lake levels of the Great Salt Lake more seriously in this last session and started, you know, providing resources to actually, you know, mitigate the water diversions. And, and you know, I'm hoping that that, you know, the conversation about water can lead to uh, more conversations about climate. And it seems like there's a lot of opportunities opening up at the federal level as well. Um, so, 
I don't know. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, I, I think, I think by the time the political realm wraps its head around this issue, we'll be blowing through all those, all those uh, checks and balances that will keep this in place. And uh, I think it'll be too late personally, from what I've seen from the people I've talked to, the politicians all the way up to the house leader, I had a conversation and, it just didn't seem to take effect. You couldn't get the severity of this issue and what it means for the population of the world, let alone the population of Utah, that we need to really wrap our heads around this and embrace the science as opposed to just thinking, well, it's, I'm not really sure if this is really happening kind of thing. Um, I think if we had a solution down the road and we were going to just embrace at some point in the future, Maybe you'd have a little more hope, but with these uh, these tipping points that we've we've already blown through most of them, and the fact that CO two stays in the atmosphere for a thousand years, it doesn't just precipitate out or go away. What we're doing today stays in the atmosphere for a thousand years, and our CO two levels are the highest they've been in millions of years. When you look at the body of work and the body of analysis on this, we are in some deep trouble, and yet the leaders that could mend this and turn this around don't seem to be grasping the enormity of what we're looking at. And, and that's why, you know, I really appreciate your voice in this and helping, helping people to understand the, you know, the stakes that are involved and the, the long-term consequences and, and the need for urgency in this, in this conversation in, in our society. Yeah. Agreed. So, I'm also curious. I want to. I want to flip things around a little bit. We've been talking about how, um, you know, the we're seeing, you know, much drier conditions and falling lake levels and issues associated with that. Um, but also, climate change affects the amount of water that the atmosphere can hold, and and we're seeing also extreme rainfall events um, all around the world, and they're becoming more and more common. I just saw a video of. Uh, you know, a flood that just happened in, in Death Valley it was a one thousand year flood. Um, and you have a lot of experience with that. And so um, how have you seen that play out in Utah and what has your experience been? When I was in a new hydrologist with the National Weather Service, um, after about, I think it was about four or five years, I, I was asked to manage the flash flood program, being the hydrologist, I deal with water. And so I would go down to the national parks and ask them, um, you know, what have you been seeing as far as flash floods? And they, they kind of had ideas on how it works and how we had flash floods. And I'd look at the data and, and they were bad, but they weren't uh, too, too uh, catastrophic, I guess is a good word. And then as time went on, especially after about 2010, the flash flooding became much greater, much more intense with a higher volume of water uh, falling from the sky and producing flash floods. And every year we would have maybe one to two people that would die in flash floods. And that number was picking up uh, the closer I got to retirement in 2019, where we had a flash flood event that killed 21 people. Uh, 13 people from Hilldale, that same thunderstorm moved into Zion, killed seven more people 
all from blunt force trauma and drowning. And then another person drove into it. We would see the increase of a hundred year to 200 year events, meaning you have a 1% to a half a percent chance of that amount of rainfall falling from the sky in this location on any given day. And yet we were seeing this with more frequency uh, and then tack on that we have way more people coming to the national parks, the five main parks in Utah that really don't understand flash flood hydrology and the fact that if you go into a slot canyon, it could be deadly. Uh, it was a very stressful time in my life to warn for these events, to get it right, but yet get an early enough warning to get people out of harm's way. Um, the person who, who got my job now that I'm retired is going to have a much more difficult time with this because for every degree centigrade, you raise the, the uh, temperature of the atmosphere, you increase the atmospheric moisture by 7%. So what we were seeing was much more severe thunderstorms, uh, uh, storms that would just pop up and go to the top scale of the radar, indicating that the radar really can't disseminate any higher level of reflectivity. Usually you have big hailstones that are, that are reflecting energy back and they think it's just a, a thunderstorm with hail, but we would have catastrophic flash floods uh, that would just wipe out um, bridges, infrastructure, uh, strand people, and even kill people during this time. And, and that's going to increase as we keep warming our atmosphere. And all you have to do is look around at the different parts of our country this year uh, that has seen massive flash flooding with deadly results. Uh, the 21 fatalities was a record for... Uh, the amount of people who died in Utah for one flash flood event. And we've already surpassed that with Kentucky's flash flood. And we're only going to see more of this as time moves on. Yeah, it's, and it's really paradoxical. I'm sure you've encountered this quite a lot in your, in your work as a hydrologist, kind of explaining that the, the changing climate gives us both more extreme rainfall events and also worse droughts. Can you talk about that? Yeah, what, what you want is, is what we used to have back in the 1960s and 1950s, where Utah during the winter months, especially in the North, the variability of the storms, meaning you could expect a storm every three to four days and, and put down a certain amount of snow in the mountains and the snow would melt at a specific time uh, late May, early June, and we would fill up the reservoirs and then we were in good shape. And this would happen with regularity every year. Well, now with the warming, uh, high pressure as the dominant weather feature, what we see are long periods of drought and high pressure, the absence of storms, inverted air masses, poor air quality, followed by very strong storms uh, that dump a lot of snow for a short period of time. And then we go back to that cycle of high pressure, lack of storms, uh, the skiing isn't very good, and our water supply, by the time we get to springtime, uh, we haven't had many storm events, yet when we do see them, they are very extreme. And, and what you want is a lot of storms with less extreme events, but more and more as they go. We don't see that now. What we see is the variability of the storms has become greater because we don't see them as often, but when they get here, they're much more potent. And then when you look at Southern Utah, 
uh, what you find is is an exacerbation of those conditions because it is more warm down there and it's it's just a warmer climate. It doesn't hold snow as much. So then you move into the summer months and what you find is we used to have thunderstorms move through and they would produce flash floods. Uh, but now what you find is long periods of very hot weather followed by intense thunderstorm activity and very high levels of flash flooding. It's Everything is more extreme from heat to drought. When it does rain, it comes down in buckets and it's localized. It's not a wide area, a area of rain that gets it. Um, and we're seeing that more and more as we continue to warm. And, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what you'll see is long periods of very hot weather, very dry conditions, followed by intense storminess that overwhelms the infrastructure of cities and towns and really um, areas that people aren't used to this type of flooding. And then we go back to those long periods of hot and dry. It's just the way the atmosphere is working, mostly because of the way the jet stream is positioned, how it's slowed down, um, how atmospheric moisture has increased. All of these things combined to give us this scenario that it's not conducive for us in any means. One of the things that that has really been striking to me over the years is how you know, when I first went to grad school, I was thinking, oh, many of these impacts are going to come in, you know, 2050 or 2070, you know, when I'm retiring. And we're starting to see these impacts already. I mean, you're talking about towns getting cut off. You know, in Yellowstone, there was just a, there was a huge rain event and it, it cut off the road to, to towns. And we're seeing these impacts already. Has that been surprising to you to see this acceleration of climate impacts? No, objectively, it, it hasn't. But when you're working uh, as, as the hydrologist for the weather service and you're working a shift and trying to get it right, that's when you're kind of blown away at just what you're looking at, uh, the severity of these storms. But if you really go back a little bit and looked at the science, what they were talking about in the 1990s, this is the exact scenario that was called for. I mean, the scientists that did this research back in the 80s uh, knew that this was going to happen. They talked about this. They did research. That research was added on. And now there's just, you know, a myriad of studies, like 98%, 99% of, of, of the scientists that do this work called for this very same scenario. So it shouldn't be any surprise. The problem is the general public was told this is not happening that it's this, the climate scientists are not telling you the truth. Um, and, and personally, I was, I was uh, giving many presentations on this very same subject. And I even had people on the talk before me say, don't listen to this Noah scientist. He is lying to you, uh, which was really hard to hear, mostly because it's just a sad state of where we were. Uh, but just to have to go on and give a talk with uh, people who think you're not telling the truth, I found was was unfortunate. We don't need to do that. If we could embrace the science, which is the truth of the matter, and act accordingly, we would be much better off at this point. But yet we've taken 30 years of time and played games with it. Who's telling the truth? Don't listen to these people. They're not. And it's all about uh, trying to keep the oil, gas, and the petroleum industry making money with this, and it's unfortunate. So thinking about 
you know, where do we go from here? What do we need to, what needs to happen now? Um, What are things that, that we need to be working on that we need to be talking to our policymakers about? Uh, What are things that we as individuals can do uh, to help uh, try to solve these issues? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is get the politicians on board so they truly understand what's in store for Utah and the U.S. and the world. Um, the, what we've seen is a brief snapshot of, of what's to come. And it's not a dramatization of, you know, let's make things scary or bad. It's just the science. Um, if you look at um, the amount of 100-degree days in Moab, let's say, I think what I looked at was um, maybe there are 20-some days, and we're going to bump that up to about 84 days by 2100. Um, farmers that I would talk to when I was working were very skeptical of this science back in the early 90s, all the way through my entire career. And yet they were the ones that have taken this on the chin and it's going to get much worse for them. So if we can educate the politicians and and elect the politicians that understand this issue and will do something about it, uh, that's the first step. And that's the biggest step because we did such good science throughout my career and tried to get this to the legislature and it was just ignored. Um, if we can get around that, if you can elect the, the politician in your area and for the state and for the, the national level of people who understand this, then at that point, we can have money infused into the system. We can change it around to a clean energy where we don't pull carbon out of the ground and burn it, and put it in the atmosphere. Then we need to figure out how to turn this around and get it from the atmosphere back into the ground. We burn the rocks, put it in the atmosphere. We need to get it from the atmosphere back into the ground. And there's a lot of good science on a small scale on how to do this, but nothing globally at this point. Remember, we have those tipping points that we've probably already blown through. So what we're doing is delaying this. We're probably not going to recover what we've already started. We can delay the process. So maybe down the road, we can have like an Elon Musk type thing that just, you know, cleans up the place. But I don't see that happening anytime soon on any of these levels I've already talked to. So this is maybe a a funny question here, but is there anything that gives you hope or optimism for the future? Um, I, I'd like to tell you that I feel very hopeful for our future. And I, I, as part of my job, I went to the University of Maryland with other climate scientists and hydrologists. And there was an older gentleman who was a scientist there. And I asked him, do you think we'll get out of this? You know, this was back in the early 2000s. And he, his feeling was, I've seen the U.S. mobilize, you know, through his, when he was a small child, for World War II. And we won. We turned the economy around. We did it. We won. We had John F. Kennedy said, we're going to get a man on the moon and we're going to bring him back. And we did that. And he said, and I think we can do that for uh, this topic. And in my mind, I thought, we don't really have that uh, lack, that 
inertia or that belief that we need to get behind this. We have people still uh, denying that this science exists and we have politicians that really won't do much about it. And so I found when I sat there and listened to the rest of his um, discussion and his lecture, I, I thought, I don't know if we're going to get out of this because of where we are. If you and I had this conversation in the early 90s and people were on board and politicians all agreed that this was a problem and we need to turn this around, I would say, absolutely, we can, we can figure this out and we can get out of this. But we have let that critical window run right by us. And now it's to the point where what we're trying to do is make it a better living for our children and our grandchildren by slowing this down. Um, so we have hope that this may occur. Um, I've seen other things that have changed around pretty quick when we really kind of wrapped our heads around it from the top to the bottom. And I hope that that's the case. But I, you know, when I retired, I was pretty beat down at that point. I was pretty depressed over this issue because more and more of these events were occurring, massive flash floods, incredible droughts that are putting farmers out of business, water districts searching for any way to produce more water. And finally, I, I, I just had enough at that point. And I, I, you know, I retired after 30 years, it was time to do something different, but um, I felt pretty beat down over this issue. And, and uh, I'm hoping something will come of this, just you and I, our conversation, that somebody may be listening to this and think, you know, we, we need to get on this and we need to change our political structure and we need to really wrap our heads around this. It's not going to go away. The way the atmosphere is situated with so much CO2, methane and nitrous oxide in the atmosphere that um, we've just kind of painted ourselves into a corner at this point. Maybe we can, maybe we cannot. I, I don't know. Yeah. And I guess my hope is that, you know, we see how, how fast technology can move when it's, when it's motivated to do so. I mean, you know, yeah. 20 years ago, nobody had a cell phone, nobody had an iPhone and now they're ubiquitous. And so it seems like the pace of technology adoption is, is potentially there. And, you know, that's, that's, I'm just, I'm just hoping that, that it can, you know, really accelerate this transition and because there is this really strong urgency as you've, as you've talked about. Yeah. We have a very small window of time to, to turn this around. Um, and we need to get on this really quick and with all of our resources. Yeah. That's a, it's a clarion call for urgency in, in all of the work that we're doing. So. Agreed. Well, that's all for, for this episode of Utah Talks Climate. Um, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. And thanks, Brian, for talking with us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Utah Talks Climate. Check back for more episodes next month. And in the meantime, stay in the know on all things clean energy and climate by signing up for Utah Clean Energy's newsletter at utahcleanenergy.org.